So, uh, why don't you read verses 55 to 57? 55 to 57. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? But the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. This is kind of the culmination point, isn't it? Um, This has been working up to it. Uh, There have been other councils and other meetings and other plots and schemes to get Jesus, but now they're in earnest, and and the Pharisees and the Sadducees are united in their uh, quest to figure out how to put Jesus to death. Indeed, this this is one of these culminating events where it's like now we put the word out. Everybody, keep an eye out. Look for this man. We mm-hmm. want to kill him. We now have a manhunt going yeah. on. And I suppose we should have read this last week because we were kind of on this topic, but. This is now a bridge to something else, and that is the Sabbath before the crucifixion. What we have, we often begin crucifixion week with Sunday, Palm Sunday. But John begins it with Sabbath. The Sabbath before Palm Sunday. Um, And the reason we know that is because verse 12 of chapter 12 says, The next day the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. We think of that last week as starting with his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But John begins that last week because he's focusing on Jesus' death, whereas we tend to focus on the resurrection. So he begins that last week with the living embalmment of Jesus. What Mary does to him at this feast is his, the only embalming he gets for his burial. Hmm. Because if you move on, I, maybe it's not in John... No, they do wrap him in spices, according to John. But it's Nicodemus who comes and brings the mixture of myrrh and aloes. And uh, so they do embalm him to preserve his body. Uh, I think it's Matthew that says they went home and prepared the spices after they buried him. And they were going to then embalm him on Sunday. I think was the idea. Maybe Matthew 26, probably. Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe I'm wrong. It just Matthew just says that they wrapped the body in in a clean, clean linen cloth. Which which one is it that says they went home to keep the Sabbath? Maybe it's John. Try Luke. Yes, it's Luke, I'm thinking of. Luke 22? Luke 23. Oh, 23. Joseph of Arimathea 
asked for the body of Jesus, and he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid it in Brachion tomb. Uh, the women who had followed with him from Galilee followed, who had come with him from Galilee followed, and they saw the tomb and how the body was laid. And they returned and prepared spice and ointments. And then it says in chapter 24, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. So going back to John 12, I find it interesting that John frames the death of Jesus in the Passion Week with this anointing of Jesus, anointing him when he's alive. And and see, that's what... um, And I think it is uh, John, more than any of the other Gospels, who says, uh, has Jesus saying, she bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. Hmm. And the other thing that's fascinating about how John does this in in chapter 12 is that in verse 3, an expensive perfume, uh, and at least the NIV says uh, at the end of verse and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, the whole. Right. So. That's what my version says. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then, of course, we have an objector to this thing. Mm-hmm. Judas Iscariot, as identified. And what is kind of fascinating here is that, because he, he was the treasurer, and to him, he's looking at, some of the evidence suggests earthly value. What are you doing with, you know, we could sell this expensive perfume and look how much we could give to the, or some other agenda that really just got him completely upset. Look, verse 5, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Now, I couldn't even imagine, <laughs> I know what I make in a year, to buy a perfume that took me a whole year to make. Yikes! This is, this is fascinating. But then look what Jesus says right away. Leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. What do you think the point is? Hmm. I uh, entered my doctoral program in 1987 with an intent, and that is to get to the bottom line of Babylon. I wanted to know why the Bible was so opposed to Babylon. And what I discovered is that Babylon is kind of the prototype and, and almost the it builds on Sumerian, which is er- deemed a little earlier uh, than Babylonia, uh, and possibly Assyria, but it, de- it builds on ancient beginnings of civilization and becomes the prototype of all civilization. And that's what the purpose of, one of the purposes anyway, of the Tower of Babel story in Genesis 11 serves. Uh, it, it's a parody of creation. Um, so we're talking about John 12. Okay. I'll do a little recap for you. So that Sorry, 
No problem. Sorry. No sweat. <laughs> so John 12? Yeah. Which version? Uh, so any any version you want. <laughs> okay. okay. So um, we look we looked at this verse and and we recognized that John doesn't begin the Passion Week with Palm Sunday. Hmm. He begins it with the day before, on Sabbath, with the uh, Mary's anointing of Jesus, mm-hmm. and. That anointing was her embalming his body for burial. Mm-hmm. But he does; she does it to him while he's alive, so to speak. And she and she and she uses it to transform the foot washing into which we're having today, by the way, at the PUC Church. Um, to transform the foot washing into this this anointing and this embalming and. and um, the spreading of the her way of spreading the good news. I mean, the perfume fills the whole house. It's symbolic of mm-hmm. of the fragrance of Jesus that fills the world. So John begins here because his focus is on Friday, on Jesus' death. Although we also talked about the expense of the perfume, <coughs> what took a year's wages, Ooh, a whole year's wages for that. Wow. And the fact how Judas Iscariot became very upset about that. Mm. Mm-hmm. Where, <laughs> where he said later in verse 5, why wasn't this perfume sold to the money? S- sold and the money given to the poor. Uh, one thing we did not touch on is in verse 6 where <laughs> it says, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Yeah. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help yeah. himself to what was put into it. But I couldn't even imagine stealing from Jesus. But you know what? It's still going on today. <laughs> Isn't that? Yeah. And, and this touches on something I was just beginning to share. Mm-hmm. That when I uh, started my doctoral program and, and realized that I was going to be studying ancient Mesopotamia, I had looked for the bottom line of why the Bible is so opposed to Babylon. And I came to the conclusion that Babylon is the prototype of ancient civilization. And the foundation of that prototype is economics. That originally God's plan was gift-giving, mm-hmm. without obligation, without strings attached, without any expectation, just giving. Because every need, in the Garden of Eden, every need was supplied. And Adam and Eve did not have to pay for anything. It was truly a garden of grace. If you understand grace, and the New Testament means gift. So Babylon, like the birthplace of a financial system where there's money and paying and debt. Yeah, it started with, yeah. it started mm-hmm. with obligatory gift-giving. I give you something and I expect you to give me something in return. And in Asian cultures to this day, that is a huge thing. You don't give someone a gift without expecting them to give you something equal to in value or better. And in the prison system of today, <coughs> that's the basis of transactions. Right. Inmates. Yeah. So so that it is it's interesting how many times Jesus 
takes on the economic thinking and the economic modeling of the ancient world. He takes it on uh, first in the temptation to make stones into bread. Because that's based on, I mean, economics is based on need, isn't isn't it? I mean, it's based on I'm hungry and I need food. Mm-hmm. I'm I, I'm thirsty and I need water. I'm I'm naked and I need clothing. I you know and so on. <laughs> if I'm not a farmer, I have to buy food. If I don't know how to make clothes, I have to buy clothes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's all built on need. And. Here is Jesus, needier than he's ever been before. Forty days fasting. Mm-hmm. And and the, this angel of light comes to him and tells him, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. And he could have. Oh, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and, wow. And Jesus passes that test. Why? Because man shall not live by bread alone. We don't live on the economic model. We live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then the next thing is to undermine the law of God and taking him to the pinnacle of the temple and saying, cast yourself down. Because it is written, the angel shall keep, he shall give his angels to keep charge over you and keep you in all your ways. And Jesus says, no, I won't defy the natural law of gravity and expect God to perform a miracle. Now, Satan knows that he was the son of God. He, was, he has love the power. He didn't, he didn't. See, Babylonian law is somewhat related to magic. You think that it was like it was going on by then? Um, Jesus? Well, I'm talking about magic. ancient Babylon. Babylonian law is akin to magic, and the reason I know that is because it belongs to the same school of thought as divination and omens. And the omens were, were like case laws. And they were viewed as verdicts from the gods. And everything depended on getting in the gods' favor to get out of your scrape. So he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. It's simply an extension of the thinking that God can pull you out of anything you put yourself in. You just have to keep in his favor. So it doesn't matter about cause and effect. Whereas God's law is not a legal document, it is a cause and effect moral document. It's a very different kind of law. Mm-hmm. So, so Jesus takes, takes that on in his temptations, and then uh, finally there's this kingship model. These are the three great models that Babylon invented, or that ancient Mesopotamian in, invented, uh, by which to, to control the world. Can you repeat those three, please? I'm recording now. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> this is the three. This is the title. Uh, economics, law, and kingship. Um, I usually reverse that order, economics, kingship, and law. They're very intertwined, extremely intertwined. Law was invented to deal with economic problems, property issues, predominantly. Kingship was invented as a result of economics and the problem of war and the problem of temple economic keeping. Economics was anciently tied to the temple. So, so they're all interrelated. Jesus takes them all on and um, passes the test on everyone. He refuses to bow down and worship Satan to get the kingdoms of the world. He refuses to bow to power because Satan is all about power. He refuses to 
uh, be self-serving and use his creative power to create something that he can eat. <clears throat> he refuses to break natural law. And ultimately refuses to save himself. Right. Which is the bedrock of all of those models. It's an mm -hmm. attempt, a human attempt to save ourselves, mm -hmm. to preserve mm -hmm. ourselves, to, to fulfill our own needs. Some of the evidence I came across indicates that the location where Jesus was at the time where Satan had tempted him turned these stones into bread, depending on which translation you read, that that location, some of those stones had the shape of bread. And I cannot, I cannot confirm that yet, but I find that fascinating if indeed that's true. And plus, when you're hungry, you're going to see this. 40 days? <laughs> couldn't even you're imagine. You're going to see bread. <laughs> yeah, that looks like bread right there. Mm, it'd be so easy to just... So, mm -hmm. yeah. yes. uh -huh. so to move along, Jesus, in his parables, takes on these models repeatedly. We've read um, this, the story of the two debtors, for example. We've read the story of of the laborers who were all paid the same no matter when they started to work. If that doesn't mm -hmm. undermine the economic, especially the capitalistic economic model, there's nothing that does. And then Jesus climaxes in Matthew, he climaxes his teachings with the parable of the sheep and the goats. The issue of being hungry, naked, thirsty, and, and so on is solved if you do it the least then you've done it to me that's what makes you a Christian that's what makes you a follower of Jesus so here we come to this first act in the last week of Jesus life and a woman goes out and squanders her money to buy this expensive perfume and pour it on Jesus' feet. How many of us would be tempted to say, what a waste? If you know the price, yes. <laughs> I think. <laughs> Indeed, a whole year? <laughs> wow. Yeah. Would you spend my paycheck one. for the year, for the year, on Jesus? See, the bottom line in all of this is to do with value. What is of value? Because that's economics, kingship, and law have to do with value. What is of value? Is it the nard that she used? Or is it Jesus that is of value? And is it possible that our value is found in how much we value him? that every time we push him back or put him aside or don't value his matchless worth, which is his character, we devalue ourselves. Economics easily leads to theft. So Judas is a thief. It's no surprise. You know, it, it can be easy temptation. Like, I've been self-employed for a while. And then it hurts me just to pay tax, all the money that I, you know, 
I, I was just thinking about, well, I can pay a little bit, doesn't need to pay everything. Because when you receive cash, is a big temptation. You know, but it's stealing. But sometimes I think, hmm, he's stealing too. Who is giving to me, you know? Interesting. Well, this is scaring me. Yeah, you mentioned self-employment. Well, I'm self-employed, and one thing I can state for the record is that when I think I might need a little bit more money, I would have a rate increase. That doesn't always agree with our Lord Jesus. And it shows up. And things happen that I need to remember, hmm, I need to let Jesus go first. Because very easily, self-employment is, 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 is quite a unique thing in, in, in many ways. And the other thing I can say about it is that as long as I have just what I need, everything goes really good. If I think, if I, think I need a little bit more and try to get a rate increase, things don't go so good. It's true. Very interesting about the value it's, and what, what, what I, find, I think I need and what I know Jesus knows that I need. <laughs> what I find interesting in my own life is that uh, God allows all kinds of things to go wrong that cost me and cost me and cost me until I'm like at the brink of like, I don't think I can do this anymore. And then... Something happens. I can't explain it, mm -hmm. but it always works out. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's like uh, he brings us to our place of, mm -hmm. well, maybe you shouldn't have done that. Now here's your little discipline, okay? And then, but then on the other side of that, what in, you in just explained, cases, on the other side is... In some cases, it's not discipline. It's just simply my car died. You go backwards. You go backwards. You go backwards. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it is a way of increasing our faith because what is the opposite of relying on the models of Babylon? When we manufacture it ourselves, what is that called? By Works. Self, yeah. And then we, when we allow God to supply our every need and trust Him, what is that called? Faith. Yeah, that's a good word, allow. We, we allow, yeah, that's a very good word there. So here you have, this is not, not Palm Sunday, but this is the harbinger, you might say, the, the portent of what is to come. This is, this is the frame, the first frame of the final events of Jesus' life. This anointing of his feet. And I just love those words, leave her alone. <laughs> <laughs> just plain and simple, straight to the point. It, I, I just, I don't know how many times when I have uh, had difficulties with men who think that I'm available for their use, I would love to hear Jesus say, Leave her alone. So, note that here in verse 9, when the great crowd of the Jews 
learned that he was there. They came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So they're at the home of Lazarus. We understood this was Simon's home. It's in Bethany, so... Let's take a look. Because he was at... He was at the dinner of Jesus' honor, and it looks like, um, well, verse 12, 1 says, where Lazarus lived. So they were most likely at Lazarus at the house. It says they were at Bethany. Yes, in this story they are, but in another telling of the story, unless Jesus is anointed twice, I'm trying to find the other instances of this story. Seems like it should give me a cross reference here. Let's try uh, Matthew 26. 6, verse 6. While Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. So, Simon, this is Simon's home. That's and Mary and Martha and Lazarus live with their uncle, apparently. So he was uncle? Uncle? Uncle. uncle. That's traditional. Yeah. I don't know that he was. It doesn't say he was their father. They live with Simon. Hmm. If, if you put the two texts together, that's what it says. Now, if you see them as telling two different stories, that's another issue. But, but um, then, significantly different in Luke 7. Um, coming down to Luke 7, Luke 7 verse 37. Also a similar incident, when a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him, at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Separate incident, I guess. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. So that's, that must be a separate incident separate location how do we know mm-hmm. see there's the problem with with the gospels um, you have two demoniacs or one mm. yeah some of the details may vary but the story may be the same at any rate Mary makes this anointing of Jesus feet and the house is filled And all these people who've come to see Lazarus are recipients of this act. So, verse 10, the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death as well, since it was on account of him that many of the Jews were deserting. Notice the word deserting. We have now taken us and them mentality. There are two sides. And if you go over to that side, you have deserted us. Okay, That's, the, the lines are clearly drawn. Uh, many of the Jews were deserting and were believing in Jesus. I like that translation. It's uh, the Geneva verse eleven says, "Because that, uh, for his sake, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus." Yeah. But clearly, that this desertion. the choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'm going to go with Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and and using the word deserting. I, you know, this is a translator's choice now. This is not necessarily Greek. But using that word evokes context of war. 
because you desertion is something uh, soldiers do in in battle. It's serious. It's serious. Yeah. So now we come to the triumphal entry, and now we move shift from economics to kingship, and this is a foreshadowing of what will take place when Jesus is tried before Pilate in John. John highlights the fact that they put Jesus to death because he said he was king of the Jews, or because they thought he said he was king of the Jews. So the next day, the crowd that came to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. I'm in verse 12. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written. Don't be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming. Who is this king? Blessed he is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. They're saying, blessed is Jesus, our King. In ancient Near Eastern cultures, especially, I believe, in Mesopotamia, kings would make triumphal entries, particularly after coming back from battle with their captives. The captives would be walking naked behind them, tied body to body in a long chain. And they would come parading down the streets of Babylon while the crowds were watching and cheering. So Jesus takes this ancient way, and this was also done in Rome, in the Roman Empire, maybe not so much with captives, but with getting kingly power, taking kingly authority. And so his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written of him and had been done to them. So the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, these are the people who have been watching Jesus' last and final act of raising Lazarus from the dead. So they had been with him when they called Lazarus out of the tomb, raised him from the dead, continued to testify. It was also because they heard that he had performed the sign that the crowd went to meet him. So the crowd had heard about it. They come to meet him. The Pharisees then said to one another, You see, you can do nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, if we go to Mark's rendition of this story, Mark has Jesus completing this triumphal entry, going all the way up to the temple, which is where the inauguration and, and victory, uh, the, the king's victory in taking the throne, once again, would be enacted, according to the ancient model. Mark has Jesus walking to the temple, looking around at everything, and then leaving, and not asserting his kingship. It's a deliberate move on Mark's part. John doesn't even get Jesus close to that. Jesus gets interrupted by these two men who are 
Greeks. So this is, this is Jesus' statement against the world's view of kingly power. I mean, who are his captives? Who are the people following him as he goes into Jerusalem? They're the people he has healed. They're the people who heard about Lazarus. They're the people who watched him raise Lazarus from the dead. They're willing captives. They're not forced. And they're not going to be exploited and sold as slaves. John is going to make that very, very clear. So, verses 20 to 26. Here come the Greeks. They come to Philip. And they say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. The reason they go to Philip is because he's from Bethsaida in Galilee, which is the crossroads, and one of the crossroads of uh, Greco-Roman culture and Palestinian culture. Philip told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, very truly. I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. How has he glorified it? When did God first talk publicly to Jesus? Baptism. Yeah. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. So we could say he glorified it then, and now he's glorifying it again. And the whole crowd heard it. <laughs> Verse 29. And this is probably the same crowd that we were just mm-hmm. talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And isn't it interesting, depending on what we already understand and know about Jesus, and what we already have come to perceive and how un, how how our vision has been enlightened depending on that determines whether we hear words or hear thunder or whether we perceive it's God speaking to his son or whether we think it is an angel so so much in in belief is not the raw evidence. Raw evidence does not create belief. We create belief. And yes, we need evidence to support our belief, and faith is based on evidence. But it's but the faith itself does not spring out of the evidence. It springs out of what we have done pr- prior to this with the evidence that enables us to accept greater evidence and greater light. Jesus said, this voice has come. He doesn't try to tell them, look, it's my Father speaking. Can't you understand? He says, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now, 
is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all to myself. By the way, the word people, or men, is not in the Greek. The all is all. Inclusive. I'm looking for a Greek New Testament. In this library, we should have one. We used to. Interlinear one is better than nothing. I don't know what happened to... Maybe we didn't have a Greek New Testament. That's terrible not to have one in the theology department. But anyway, mm. verse 32. 32. Pontos. I was looking to see whether it was hopantos or tos pontos, which would be in this case, <clears throat> or whether it would be just pontos. It's just pontos. Paul takes this on. And talks about the ta panta, which is the all. And and if you know anything about German, it parallels the German das alles, the all, meaning the whole universe. And John and Paul talks about the whole universe being reconciled by the cross. And so I, I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all to me. Jesus is talking all-inclusive, not just of this world, but the whole universe. And that's what led Ellen White, I think, to say that even the angels are not secure against apostasy except by the death of Jesus. Jesus died for the universe. So there must have been Greek... Gentiles present then, maybe, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, these are Gentiles. Yeah. I have a question, and our time is up, so maybe I should save this question for next week, and we can just pit, kind of move backwards and forwards. Um, my question is, when the Father says, "I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again." He glorified it at Jesus' baptism. Is his glorification of it again going to include Jesus' death? If you're going to reign as a king, in a traditional sense, being crucified by the Roman government is the last place you would ever assert your kingship. When Jesus died, he didn't just put to death the law of sin and death. He put to death the kingly model of power because he, he made a very clear statement. This is my throne. My throne is a cross. And my crown is a crown of thorns. You see, that crown of thorns, the reason they put that on him is because they were mocking his kingship. This is the only crown you get to wear. And Jesus wore it in defiance of the kingly model that they had ascribed and that led them to put him to death. And he left it on. I mean, how many of us would just want to just, ouch, those thorns hurt. Yeah. Okay. We're going to stop with verse 32. There's a lot more in this chapter.
Maybe we'll do a backup recap next time and then get through the chapter because I have a feeling there's a lot of parts that fit together. And then we make another transition. Too bad we weren't just one step ahead of ourselves. We're doing chapter 13 today when today's communion says. Okay, let's have prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for giving us a glimpse of the nature of your kingdom and the nature of who you are and how you rule the universe. I pray that we may grasp this more fully and completely and that it may challenge us to live different lives than we live on a normal day-to-day basis. Bless us to this end, we pray, especially in the shadow of a new year. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.